0: Right on, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 your Bibles. And uh, we're going to continue on in our series here in Matthew. Kind of after this morning, we'll, we'll kind of break till after Christmas on the, the gospel of Matthew. But uh, we're going to roll right into Matthew chapter 21 this morning. Why don't we uh, just open this time in a word of prayer. Lord, just come before you this morning... Uh, We're your people, the sheep of your pasture, and uh, Lord, we pray this: your rod and your staff, you just uh, guide us and you direct us this morning, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your your word is a living word, Uh, that it's real, Lord, that it's powerful, that it uh, is sharp like a sword dividing flesh and spirit, bone and sinew, and Lord, we just pray that the word of God would pierce our own hearts this morning, Jesus, that we'd see you in your character, in your, in your nature as, as our king, that we would grow in our understanding of your kingdom and that uh, you just speak to our hearts. And so this morning, Lord, we just commit this time to you, Lord. We ask your blessing upon it. We pray for your spirit's empowerment upon this time. And uh, invite you. we invite the seed of your word just to penetrate our hearts, Lord. God, we just open our hearts to you this morning. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would find good soil for the word of God. And so, Lord, we just ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, so we're in Matthew chapter 21. What I'm going to do this morning is just that we're going to go through verses 1 through 17. And I'm going to just start us off by just reading this whole section of scripture. And then uh, we'll take a peek at it. So let's, let's start in verse 1. It says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, And on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and and that that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying who is this? And the crowd said this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and in the and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Right on. I'm going to back up a little bit here because that mic's acting up. So, right on Matthew chapter one. In this uh, section of the gospel, what we come to is really the final section of Matthew's gospel. Um, Since Matthew chapter 16, what we've seen specifically is this, is that Jesus has been proclaiming to his disciples the necessity of the cross. And so from Matthew 16, right here to chapter 21, the lesson and the ministry of Jesus has been very focused on his disciples, preparing the 12 for this arrival in Jerusalem. And we've seen that over the last uh, number of weeks. And uh, now they've journeyed uh, to Jerusalem on this trek to the cross. And though Jesus is clearly laid out, I mean, we've seen this. I mean, I don't know how many times we were discussing this in our home group this week. How many times did Jesus tell these guys between uh, chapter 16 and chapter 21 that he was going to a cross, that he was going to die, that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be betrayed and that death and resurrection were awaiting him. Betrayal was awaiting him in Jerusalem. And we get that sense always through the gospels that the the disciples weren't really grasping and understanding all that was going to happen in this final week of Jesus' life. Because right here at Matthew chapter 1, this is the the start of the final week uh, leading to the cross. And the final eight chapters of Matthew zero in on this this last week uh, leading to the cross, and they culminate in the resurrection. One of the things we're going to see is that, most of these chapters, most of what we're going to read at the end of Matthew takes place on Tuesday before the cross. It's one long teaching that takes three chapters for Jesus to get through it, for Matthew to record it. And so this morning we come to this account. I love this account. I love the story of the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, It's a little bit out of context with the calendar for us this morning. But uh, it's a great story. One of my favorites in the Gospels. And it's interesting because Matthew's account of, all four Gospels tell the account. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the account of the triumphal entry. But Matthew's account is different in a certain sense. And it's different in this, is that this is the first time that Matthew tells us about Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Never in Matthew's Gospel did, have we read once yet or studied Jesus in Jerusalem. And so Matthew, as we know, is writing, as he writes his gospel, um, he he is not writing logic. He's not writing, sorry, chronologically, but he's writing logically. So he's not telling us the chronology of Jesus' life. Even though we've come to this last week, he's giving us a logical lesson. And and Matthew's vision, as we have seen all throughout uh, our study in the gospel of Matthew, was to reveal to the reader the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven, to make it clear that who was the king? Jesus was the king of the kingdom of heaven. And so in Matthew's account, on this journey that we've seen all the way to Jerusalem, this is the climax of the story that we're coming to. This is the pinnacle so far. The Messiah is coming into his city. As we read, he's going to come into his temple immediately as he enters the city. And he's going to demonstrate the Both the humility, riding on the colt, but also the authority, kicking over the tables in the temple of God himself. The humility and authority of the king. And the king is to be seen here. He's he's coming to Jerusalem for the express purpose of making himself known. You know, the triumphal entry is is, uh, different from all the other times that we read about the ministry of Jesus and his his work with people and the crowds and reaching out to them, you know the gospels tell us um, that Jesus' normal practice was to kind of function with some anonymity. You know, to silence the crowd, to keep quiet, to to um, resist uh, their desires to see the fulfillment of the messianic kingdom at this point in time, and and then, you know. Uh, so, So in this desire for anonymity, Jesus did lots of things. You know, we read about him. One time he sent the disciples. We don't read this in Matthew's Gospels, but the other Gospels tell us that one time he sent the disciples ahead of him to Jerusalem, and then he came later on for the feast because he wanted to function in anonymity. And so where at other times Jesus basically discouraged the idea of stirring up the crowd or provoking a demonstration, this time the triumphal entry is totally different. It's unique in Jesus' ministry. Now, this time he was deliberately provoking a demonstration in Jerusalem. He was seeking to fulfill prophecy. You know, the the crowd was crying out, Hosanna, blessed be your name in the highest. And Jesus was not simply, I don't know, yielding to the clamor of the crowd. He was provoking it. He was stoking the flame. He was stirring the pot and he didn't seek to silence praise. But to arouse it. And he was fulfilling the word of God, fulfilling what was spoken by the prophet Zacharias, saying, who said, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You know, we, we read in other places in the Gospels that, that Jesus, when when the Pharisees spoke up and said, Silence that crowd, Jesus said, if I silence them, the rocks will cry out. Uh, the earth will give way. And so, what did they do? They, they gathered around him. They laid their cloaks down. They cut their branches and they gave sway to them. And the crowd shouted, Hosanna's name. Now, I was thinking about that. That Hosanna, that word, it means save us. We know that. Save us now. Hosanna has a name. His name is Jesus. The, the only name under heaven given to men by which must, they must be saved, the name of Jesus. And the cry of save us ha- has a name, Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, blessed be your name, they cried out. The king, he comes. That's the picture. And this was, I mean, we have to see this, and Matthew wants us to see this. This was in absolute opposition to all of Jesus' usual action. To this this point, his whole ministry had been one long effort of dampening down unscriptural ideas of what the Messiah was, unscriptural messianic hopes. He never tried to dissuade people's belief in him. No, that's not what he was doing. Never did Jesus try to dissuade people's belief that he was the Messiah, but he sought to quash unscriptural ideas about the Messiah, He always sought to help the crowds come to understand the true nature of the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven is first a a spiritual rule over the hearts of men before it's a physical rule over the entire earth. Before it's a rule over the physical realm of men. And so previously Jesus had sought to avoid that unchecked enthusiasm and now he's letting it surge all around him. Not avoiding. The time for avoiding, the time for dissuading, the time for dampening praise was now over. And so we read again, verse 1 Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a coal with her, untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Town of Bethpage, in fact, two towns that we're going to read about in this little passage of scripture, Bethpage and Bethany, are just to the east of Jerusalem. They're two little small villages that are are near or are are on probably the the backside of the Mount of Olives. It's interesting that um, we're going to see the next time we come back to Matthew, Jesus' cursing of the fig tree. Well, Bethpage means house of the unripe figs. That's the name of that village. And from Bethpage, Jesus would have traveled... uh, to the Mount of Olives and then made this descent that we know down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up towards uh, the Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives, I I love talking about this because, you know, I've had the privilege of getting to go to Israel and we are going to start planning, actually, our next trip for 2018 after Christmas. But... um, the Mount of Olives dominates the skyline to the east of Jerusalem. In fact, if you, if you come to Jerusalem from the east, you're going to come over the top of the Mount of Olives towards the city. And when you go visit there, that's the first place that they take you. You know, the, the guides are always sure to make sure that they take you around the back roots of the city so that you don't, you don't see anything until all of a sudden you come over the top of the Mount of Olives and there is the Temple Mount and this scene that you're so familiar with. With your, with your eye. Great spot to view the city of Jerusalem. And Not only from there do you look out over the city. But you look down into the, the Kidron Valley. And uh, you look across the valley. And there's this beautiful unobscured view of the Temple Mount. And of course in Jesus' day. The Mount of Olives. That, that viewpoint. What dominated the skyline. Was the house of the Lord. The the, the temple itself that was there on that mountain. And so Matthew includes the names of these little places Bethpage, Bethany as we're going to see, uh, to show us how near Jesus is to Jerusalem. He's within a day's walking distance, a Sabbath walk. And perhaps I think that Jesus uh, that that in this whole scene Jesus is seeking to evoke messianic expectations. In and of itself, the Mount of Olives is a significant place in Scripture. It's a significant significance in Scripture actually is always associated with uh, the Messiah. I've told you that today, if you go to the Mount of Olives, it's covered in tombs. It's covered in tombs because the Scripture prophesies that when Jesus comes again, his feet will first touch the Mount of Olives. And so the Jewish people clamor to be closest to the place the Messiah will be so that when the resurrection of the dead happens, they're right there. And so they pay big money to be buried on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah tells us of that day, speaking of the day of the Lord in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 through 4. Let me read this to you. So I'm going to read verse 3 and 4. It says this, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle, and on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall, shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other ha- half southward. Uh, one of the amazing things about the Mount of Olives is that uh, I forget, I can't remember which hotel chain it is, but they have a hotel up there. And when they did seismic studies of the Mount of Olives, they discovered that it lies right on a major fault line. Of course, the scripture prophesies that when it splits, a river is going to flow out of there. Half of it's going to go into the Mediterranean Sea. Half of it's going to go towards the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is going to come alive. It's going to flourish. Fish are going to swim there. Scripture tells us, uh, it's prophesied that men will fish on the shores of the Dead Sea when Jesus returns. And so... The point is, Mount of Olives has incredible messianic significance around it. Of course, Acts 1 tells us that 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus met his disciples, where? On the Mount of Olives. And he instructed them, stay in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Acts 1 tells us that as Jesus was saying these things, as they were looking on him, he was lifted up from that mountain and a cloud took him out of their sight. And Acts 1 tells us actually that while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come back and his feet are going to touch that place from where he ascended into heaven. And so when we think about the Mount of Olives, this is some of the Messianic expectations that were surrounding it. It's part of the significance of Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem on this day of the triumphal entry. And so the Bible tells us in verse 6 here, chapter 21, that the disciples went. They did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and, and that that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know, in my mind, I, I, uh, I kind of try to picture, you know, as you read, read the Bible, picture what's going on. In those days, beside the Temple Mount, the Romans had built a structure. It was called Antonio Fortress. And it lay on the north side of the Temple Mount. And it had been a real sore point and place of controversy for the Jews because the Romans had built Antonio Fortress high enough so that from the top, they could look down on the Temple Mount and they could see what was going on because when there was uprisings and there was issues that the Roman armies needed to step up and squash and and deal with, where did it typically start? On the Temple Mount, just like today. Same thing happens in the news today. If there's going to be trouble in Jerusalem, often it starts on the Temple Mount. And, uh, and so here they have this high point, this view. And, and this was upsetting to the Jews because for them, the temple was to be the high point, And for the Romans to have this high point and looking down uh, was something that was, well, it birthed messianic hopes. One day a king is going to come and set us free from this Roman oppression. And so you imagine... Jesus on the donkey, the crowds following him, traveling down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, and the Romans are at this high point, and they have the ability to look on. Watch what's going on. And I have to say, I I think that they were probably laughing. They were probably thinking, you pathetic, I don't know how else to say this, you pathetic Jews, look at you. Look what you have going on, your poor excuse for a king. What kind of king is this? Of course, Rome had its, its own celebrations, its own triumphal entries that they would practice uh, in Rome. When Rome celebrated a major military battle, it looked a lot different than this little scene that was going on in Jerusalem that day. First of all, if you were going to have a triumphal entry as a Roman general, a general you, you had to have conquered an opposing army that had at least 5,000 in it. The general over Rome's army would then make his triumphal entry back into the city of Rome and he would ride on a golden chariot. And the chariot would be pulled by white stallions and he would be followed by the conquered army. They would be led behind the triumphal procession of this general and the, the, the uh, losing army would be held in chains. And behind the, the, defeated, the defeated army would come the rest of the conquering Roman soldiers marching in all of their pomp and all of their ceremony through the streets of Rome and they would make their way and travel to the Colosseum where then they'd have some games and they'd take some of those who had been defeated and make them the entertainment for the evening in the Colosseum. And so that's the Roman idea of a triumphal entry. And so, you know, into Jerusalem comes Jesus riding a colt. Followed by a ragtag group of 12. Um, They smelled like fish. I don't know. No, they were fishermen. I mean, they were Galilean. We we read that in the gospels. They tell us that the bulk of this crowd was made up of Galileans that were traveling with Jesus. Decent sized crowd with them, but nothing to make a Roman soldier shake in fear. To the Romans, I imagine this whole scene was really, truly Laughable. A conquering king never rode a colt into a city. He he claimed his throne on a stallion. He came in with a horse. A horse is an animal of war. It's fit for a king. And the colt is significant to us because it symbolizes that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem in peace. Or rather, he was coming to make peace on a cross. And it was symbolic. It was a symbolic ride that the... The Jewish people understood from the prophecies of their scripture. You know the amazing thing when you think about it is uh, the triumphal entry of all the Roman generals and emperors over the centuries are almost all but forgotten, aren't they? But the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, it's preached and it's proclaimed and it's known all around the world. You know, when King David lay on his deathbed, the Bible tells us that when Bathsheba came and she um, negotiated for her son Solomon and helped get him on the throne, uh, David ordered that a colt be prepared for Solomon, that, th- that a colt be prepared and that Solomon ride through the streets of Jerusalem on a colt and that he would be proclaimed king. And the reason why David did that is this, is because Solomon's rule was established in a different way than David's rule. Solomon's rule was established during a time of peace. David's rule was established with what? A sword. He was known as a man of of blood. And Jesus, the son of man, the son of David, rode the colt into the city because like in the pattern of Solomon, he came to bring peace. He was establishing a kingdom of peace. Peace between man and his creator. And Jesus riding the colt the is a fulfillment of this, this uh, passage of Scripture from Zechariah Zach- 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt On the foal of a donkey. Matthew tells us. They laid their cloaks down. Before him. The disciples put their cloaks on the colt. And the crowds laid their. Their cloaks right on the road. And it was a a, a symbolic gesture of submission. To Jesus as Israel's king. Palm branches that they waved and laid down on the road. Symbolically represented Jewish nationalism and victory. Both were connected to uh, Jewish victories and the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, we read in 2 Kings chapter 9 that when Jehu was anointed king of Israel, he was told uh, that the Lord had anointed, he he declared to the people, the Lord has anointed me to be king over Israel. And we read in uh, chapter 9, verse 13 of 2 Kings, that they quickly took their cloaks and they spread them under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and they said, Jehu is king. And so spreading of the cloaks, the riding of a, a colt, they're, they're pictures that are seen elsewhere in scripture. They're, they're uh, by the, the act of the people, a gesture of submission. And so we read in verse 10 that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The Greek word that that is translated into our English, stirred, the whole city was stirred, is the same word from which we derive the English word seismic, speaking of earthquakes. The Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem literally shook the city in a moral and a spiritual sense. That people were shaking. It was like there was an earthquake in the hearts of men at all that was happening. They wondered, what does this mean? Who is this coming into the city? What is going on here? You know, you think about Jesus and his ministry and really his rejection that's been going on all this time. By many of the people, they would not listen to him. The religious established would not listen to him. They would not respond to him. And so, in a sense, you know, Jesus stirred the city as with an earthquake, seeking to attract people to himself. Even if, as we're going to see, he's going to pronounce a rejection of Israel. The Roman authorities kept a watchful eye looking down from their Antonio fortress, but not understanding all of the implications of everything that was unfolding. Otherwise, they would have tried to squash it. The Jewish authorities, on the other hand, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, we're going to read, they were enraged by what was happening. And the crowds, everyone was asking and wanted to know, who is this man who has caused such a storm? Who who is this man who is causing an earthquake in the hearts of people? And the answer, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Meek and lowly, the humble king coming into the city on a donkey. And as we're going to see the the revelation of the king, Jesus revealing of himself as the triumphal king is going to be equal on the level with which there is rejection. He is going to be rejected as he comes into the city. And as he is rejected, he is going to respond in rejection. But as he rides in, that's not, the day's not over because we read here that Jesus went straight into the temple courts. Look at verse 12 again. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers Yes, have you never read out of, the mouths of, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. John chapter two tells us about the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple courts. You know, often in our Bible reading, we miss the fact because we're, 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 we're reading along and we don't know to put the whole package together that Jesus actually cleansed the temple on two different occasions. He cleansed the temple at the very start of his ministry in John chapter 2. So I encourage you to go home, check that out. That's how he started. Uh, The first time we read, he made a whip. He sat down, he braided a a whip, and he drove out all who were in the temple. He said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's the first time. The first time he comes in, and it's at the start of his ministry, and really I would say this, the first time he cleansed the temple as a man. The second time he comes in is what we read about right here. It's at the end of his ministry. It's at the close of his ministry just before the cross. And I say the second time he comes in and he cleanses the temple as the king. As the triumphant king coming into his city. And Matthew tells us about this second time here at the end. It's interesting. The first time Jesus said this. My father's house. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. But the second time he comes in, he says, my house, this is my house. Do not make my house or my house is to be called a house of prayer. And it's crazy that as we think about that, he calls the temple, my house, exercising the authority of a son over the house of his father, Jesus, Lord of the temple. And the part of the temple that he came and cleansed, the part that had become a a den of robbers was the court of the Gentiles. There were oxen, sheep, pigeons we read. They were in constant demand all the time, these animals for different general offerings and sacrifices that were being made. But as we read this, one of the things uh, in context is that this is the week leading up to Passover where each family that came required a, a lamb to be sacrificed. This is where it gets crazy when you really stop and think about it because, you know, the estimates are that, that the city of Jerusalem swelled from 60, about 60,000 people up to upwards of 2 million people at Passover. You say, wow, is that really true? Well, the, Roman, the Jewish Roman historian Josephus said that Often during Passover, they needed 200,000 lambs, 200,000. So this isn't like, oh, there's five little lambs kicking around here. Like we have to see the chaos that is going on. And much of this chaos had moved into the area that was the court of Gentiles. Of course, the Gentiles could only come so far towards the house of God. And there was disdain for Gentile people. And so that area was given over and it had become this area of trade and buying and selling and money changing and purchasing animals. And the idea that 200,000 lambs were needed uh, gives us the idea that of, the, of the big business that's involved here, much of which had taken over the court of the Gentiles and much of which was controlled by who? The priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. I mean, this is big business. They're all lining their pockets and making their cut. And so for that reason, Jesus' sudden appearance as king in Jerusalem into the temple was part of his planned confrontation with the nation. His planned confrontation with Israel. His planned confrontation with the religious establishment. I can't wait to heaven we get to see their video replay. Tables. (laughs) Coins and chains rolling across the ground and birds flying around and livestock scrambling and people in shock. Uh, It's just crazy picture. But what's amazing in the midst of that is verse 14. It's really easy to miss in a quick read because we get the picture of all this craziness going on. But verse 14 says, and the blind and lame came to him in his temple, in the temple, and he healed them. I just find that amazing that amid the debris, the overturned tables, the scrambling people, the scrambling livestock, Jesus was healing blind and lame people that were coming to him. My house shall be a house of prayer. Be healed. You know, I don't know what the whole scene was, but for a moment, everything was right. You know, the house of God, the house of the Lord that had been made a den of robbers wasn't a den of robbers was a house of prayer. It wasn't tidy. You know, that's what I, I noticed about that as I say, I'm like, wow, that was a disaster going on. In the house of God, everything looked like chaos, like some Sundays around here. But God was at work in the midst of all that. It wasn't tidy. It wasn't neat. But there were blind and there were lame and they were there. And in the midst of Wrath and indignation, there was mercy and there was compassion and there was grace functioning and Jesus was healing people even in the midst of his indignation against what was going on in the house of God. You know, I got to just say, thank God for that picture of Jesus, don't you think? You know, I think about my life. This house is in an order in a lot of ways. There's mess. There's things that Jesus is working on. He's, he's got to come in and kick over tables and knock things, deal with issues of idolatry in my life and in your life. And, and I'm so thankful that in his grace, he has compassion even when my house isn't in order. When your house is not in order, with tables upside down and money scattered, he gathers the blind and the lame and the outcasts and he heals them. And in the midst of all that, Matthew even ch- tells us that the children saw these things, the little kids, and they just kept crying out, Hosanna, blessed, Hosanna to the son of David. I-, I mean, the children in the procession had come right into the temple grounds. And in the midst of all of this, they just kept worshiping. They kept praising. It's a beautiful picture of the kids actually in the story. And I think about the priests and the religious establishment. You know, they kept quiet about the money changers. Without a peep, they watched Jesus cause a stir. They had nothing to say about the healing of the blind and the lame. But there was one thing that really bugged them when you read this. There was a clear breach in their minds of everything that was proper and the crime of all crimes in the eyes of religious was this, was the noise of children praising Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I mean, look at it again. The children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were indignant. You might want to circle that word indignant and tie it back to last week. Remember the disciples? There were 10 who were indignant, Matthew told us. Indignant at the request of James and John's mother that, that you know, they have the thrones to the right and left of Jesus. And, and why were those 10 indignant? Because oh, they saw the opportunity for themselves as being lost out for the throne position that they wanted. And it's interesting here that, that these spiritual, the supposed spiritual leaders of Israel were indignant. You know, these men were had become spiritually dull, you know, dull with ceremony, dull with religion. They had lost their sensitivity to the sound of real worship. I mean, if you're a parent, you've ever, you listen to your little kids sing worship. That's the sound of real worship. Now I could hear little Brianna this morning singing "Away in the Manger." She was standing at the back singing. Away. She's gonna sing "Away in the Manger." Her and Malia tonight are gonna give us a little special, "Away in the Manger." And the religious had lost all of their sensitivity to the sound of what real worship is like. I don't know. They were just so used to the dull monotony of religion and of formality you know, they couldn't recognize true worship when it hit them between the eyes. When it was right in front of them. And I think of the voices of those little children. I mean, that was the music of heaven in the ears of Jesus. You know, I, I, I think this morning, just as a church, there's a warning to us here in this. That we forget the sound of real worship. You know that we can show up on a Sunday morning and we're so used to the routine. Get our coffee, settle into our comfy seat, we visit with our friends, the music starts, we tune it out, we come in late, whatever it is, we do our coffee break, oh we have announcements, dismiss kid. We just get into the routine. And I would encourage you before you ever show up here on a Sunday morning, ask God to do business in your heart. Say God, I want to come and worship. I don't want to just fall into the monotony monotony and the the dull, boring way we always do things. I want to enter in and worship you and worship you. You know, I think about uh, these religious men. I mean, I don't know what else to say about them, actually, except that we should heed the warning of their religious example. And you know, when I use the word religious, I use it in every demeaning sense possible. Their religious example. They were not worshipers. And the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! And they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. I I love the little poke of Jesus. Have you never read? Don't you read? Don't you know the Word of God? Uh, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but one of the ways to keep a a heart of worship is to be a person who is in the Word of God. And the religious had removed the word of God from the from the sanctuary, in a sense, they had everything was just religious ceremonial acts and dull, and they had removed the word from the people, and the people didn't know the word. And so here's Jerusalem; it's it's in an uproar. The Galileans are sh- shouting. The city has been shaken. The money changers and the pigeon salesmen have been turned out of the temple. The tables are turned over with the crash. The the money's gone flying. The blind and the lame are being healed. The the children sang and shouted praise and worship. Hosanna to the son of David. And we read in verse 17 right right away as this confrontation escalates. And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and he lodged there. And so the city's in an uproar. And Jesus just rolls out of town, goes back towards uh, Bethany and Bethpage, uh, just beyond the Mount of Olives, and he turns his back on the religious leaders. He turns his back on the city, and he spends his night in in Bethany. Of course, with the city just in a roar with so many people there and present, I think in many ways Jesus was preventing an uprising. <laughs> you know, he's preventing things from continuing to escalate either in his favor or against him. And it's interesting that as we're going to see the, the, in the final week of Jesus' life before the cross, each night in Jerusalem, he's going to leave the city. And he's going to go outside the city. The only night that he didn't leave the city, what happened? He just went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he was betrayed. And so, you know, this morning, as I, as I just think about this text, the triumphal entry, And all that we read about here, the cleansing of the temple, I want to leave us with two applications, okay? Two applications. First one I'm calling this, spiritual blindness. What is spiritual blindness? One thing about, uh, or what was, sorry, what was the cause of Israel's spiritual blindness? And one thing was this, that they had substituted the word of God for man-made religious practices. The leaders had done this and the people did not know God's word. You know, the leaders were only concerned about protecting their own interests. Jesus' miracles didn't convince them. Jesus' fulfilling prophecy didn't convince them. Jesus' causing a stir in the temple didn't convince them. Jesus' stirring the pot in terms of the messianic expectation didn't convince them. And the longer these men resisted truth, the blinder they became. And to me in this text, there's a warning. There's a warning. About spiritual blindness. And Jesus heals that. does well, that healed? Who came to Jesus in the temple? The blind and the lame. And so we always make our way to Jesus. Always Jesus at the center. Jesus is the healer of spiritual blindness. And we need to be in his word. In his word. The second warning I see in this is the warning of hypocrisy. What does God want his house to be? What does Jesus say? My house shall be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. See, prayer is evidence of our dependency on God and our faith in his word. Prayer is the evidence of our dependency on God and our faith in his word. I was was really interested this week. Um, I'm sure you guys know the local gossip right? small town. Let's gossip. The United Church is up for sale, and they had their meeting on Tuesday. 25 leaders from their presbytery on the lower man Lane came to this side. There was a small group of locals, and they, they met, and they discussed trying to save their building, and they discussed many things, and one of the things that it says in the Coast Reporter report is that they said, we've tried, and we've tried, and we've tried. This is the people saying, we want to sell the building. We've tried everything, and people don't come. There's there's no one there. And you know, I I just have to look and say the house has become everything, except what God planned for it. There's some real interesting stats that have come out. One one study from Canada and one study from the U.S. in the last number of weeks. Uh, in the article in the Coast Reporter, it, it said that mainline churches are dying, which is true. But the church is not dying in North America. In fact, they say that church attendance is up in Canada. Praise the Lord. Isn't that awesome? They actually say that there's some noticeable things about churches that are growing and that are healthy. And this came from groups that were doing studies that were not associated with Christian things. One study said this. A friend of mine posted this. He's a pastor in Revelstoke. It's Ben's brother. Uh, He he said... um, Uh, the study said that churches that were growing were committed to two things, the gospel message and to pray. Wow, that's hard. (laughs) The other study said this, churches that are growing and healthy are committed to a literal interpretation of the word of God. They believe the word of God, they proclaim the word of God. Real simple. I love that, don't you? It's like, wow, how did we ever think church could get so complicated? Preach the gospel, pray, proclaim the word of God love people. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that freeing? And the warning here is that the house of God becomes something else, that there's hypocrisy. What should there be in the house of God? Prayer. You know, I was going through uh, yesterday, I was looking at some of our old PowerPoint slides, uh, getting some things ready. And I came across this slide that we used to always run on Sunday mornings. And it was a picture of a dove with a palm leaf in its branch, uh, a palm leaf in its mouth, and it, and it said this: Wednesday night prayer, seven o'clock, the most important hour of the week. And I thought, man, I'm putting that back in for our Sunday night prayer meeting at seven thirty. Uh, we moved from Wednesday to Sunday night, and Sunday night is the most important hour of the week in our church to gather and to pray, because the house of God is to be a house of prayer. And prayer is evidence of our dependency on God and our faith in His Word. There should be praise. When we come in the doors of this house, we should lift our hands and lift our voices in praise to King Jesus. There should be helping the needy like we see Jesus doing, the blind and the lame. The power of God should be present to change people's lives. Local pastor I'm going to just tell a story. I'm going to get myself in trouble this morning. Local pastor told me about someone who came from Gibson's United Church to their church and said, do you ever experience the presence of God in your church? He said, are you kidding me? Every week. They said, what? Man, I think in 10 years, maybe I've experienced the presence of God once. The power of God should be present. The presence of God should be present to touch people's lives. Don't you believe that? One, one more fun thing. I'm kind of rambling a little bit here this morning, but I came across a study yesterday. I've posted it on my Facebook that says women who attend church significantly lower chances of heart disease, cancer, Depression and hugely substantial difference on um, the stats of their marriage being uh, prevented from divorce. In fact, 47% lower chance Uh, that church is actually healthy for you. (laughs) That's what I posted on my Facebook page. I'm like, hey, this is like healthy for your well being, physically, spiritually, mentally, relationally. Come to church. And the house of God, uh, for us, this this warning, because we can slide there too. We're not beyond this. We're not above what happens down the street. We're not above what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The house of God can become a place of hypocrisy. And we need to be a people of prayer.